Hey, welcome to season five of Right of Reply. My name is Tanisha and I am a third year politics and sociology student here at Queens and I am one of the directors of Right of Reply 2018-2019. And today I'm joined here by my co-directors Nermit and Bibby. Hi, I'm Nermit. I'm a fourth year geology major. Hi, I'm Bibby. I'm a fourth year politics major. And Bibby will be producing this episode and will be joining in on our conversation today. And later in the episode, we will be joined by Alicia Corbett, who is a PhD student in the Political Studies Department here at Queens. So our topic for this episode is social media and how the, the dynamics of power and oppression intersect. And we'll break it down into campaigns, referendums, government involvement, and community and resistance. So let's start off with campaigns and specifically the 2016 American presidential elections. Um, it was an election that was definitely impacted by social media and used social media as a tool by domestic and foreign powers with overwhelming use from both the candidates and the general public. I think the 2016 elections also brought on a lot of attention towards the pre-existing ideas of fake news where profit-hungry websites essentially created content to generate clicks but also in relation to the Mueller indictment, where masses of false and misleading information about candidates were spread by Russia's internet research agency in attempt to defraud the U.S. by obstructing the government. So social media definitely had a huge role in the campaign period of the 2016 elections, perhaps more than any other election in the past. And I know similar comparisons can be made from the 2015 Canadian elections. Definitely. So the Canadian election was very interesting because there were three major parties, the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP. But on social media, there were only two opponents, the Liberals and the Conservatives. So the Liberals used a very effective social media practice um, where they only targeted the youth and any potential voters, and they did not try to sway votes. Stephen Harper, on the other hand, had a very traditional approach to social media, um, and they did not use effective posts. Uh, liberal posts were posted in both French and English, which which really targeted Quebec and really uh, promoted bilingualism. And they had more authentic captions, but the conservatives did have a larger following. Uh, so Trudeau's social media campaign is was very personal, and he used a lot of personal quotes quotes on his Instagram captions and such. Um, so it, it's a very interesting campaign, um, and it definitely influenced the election, especially with youth to uh, voter turnout. Um, I think it really uh, translates well into referendums. I think. Yeah, for sure. One of the um, big ad blocks this year was from Facebook in regards to international ad interference during the Irish abortion re referendum which we'll be actually discussing later with Alicia in the episode. And this was prompted when researchers saw a notable strike in the amount of advertising on Facebook trying to sway undecided voters. Now, um, as we know, typical abortion ads, um, especially campaign ads, include pretty graphic images of fetuses or very pro-choice, my body, my rights type imaging. So it is debatable as to whether a decrease in ads on social media sites had an impact on voters' perceptions and stances on um, repealing the Eighth Amendment. Um, and that also kind of ties into government involvement, especially 3G bans in other countries. Yeah, so 
Um, there were protests in Bangladesh. Uh, students took to the streets to protest against poor road safety after two teenagers were killed by a speeding bus. Um, so most of the protesters in Dhaka were students and teens who had mobile cell phones, and those cell phones used 3G and 4G data. So the government, in an, in an attempt to quell these protests, you banned or had a blackout on the internet. Um, it was partially effective, but effective, but this, this did spark violence in the streets, and they eventually lifted the ban. Yeah, um, I think that also ties in really well with censorship, and I think the example that comes to mind for a lot of people is media censorship from the Chinese government. Um, we can almost say that the Chinese government is in a very gray, back-and-forth state about their censorship policies, as they do know and understand the need and uh, the importance of freedom of the press and the information that it can provide to citizens, but also being worried about opening the floor to different types of freedoms that could potentially, you know, lead to the breakdown and fall of the regime. So with the ability to filter through what's being shown to populations, the government can essentially um, manipulate public opinion through social media, ultimately affecting democracy democracies and having a major role in politics um that being said social media can you know unite and create communities uh within the technological sphere uh starting with you know something that was really popular earlier this year which was the me too movement yeah so definitely um the internet really influenced uh and really empowered women to come out. Um, so women were comfortable enough to talk about their experiences online. Um, they, and it really brought forward a lot of uh, light on sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace, just anywhere, everywhere especially. Um, and it really created a, it started the conversation. Yeah, it definitely, it's not only did it start the conversation, but it gave individuals across the world a platform to speak up on and a platform to connect on and to work towards you know creating policy and and raising awareness of you know sexual assault um that had been happening essentially in multiple parts of the world that people weren't really talking about before yeah. um and i would also say that it created a sense of community where people, like survivors essentially felt very supported um, and very connected through the internet. And the fact that this was online, it really, um, it really brought it forward to the whole world. The Me Too movement really started in the States and with Hollywood, but then it moved to government, mm -hmm. American government, then it moved to Canada, and then it moved to Europe, and then it moved to Asia, and then it moved to all these different places and all these different women coming out through the internet and through social media. So, what the two of you are essentially saying is that social media is definitely a tool, but it's also a weapon in the political sphere because of its vast reach and its ability to instantaneously allow mass information and distribution and connection. Hi, Eric. Uh, hi, I'm Eric. I'm one of the directors for ROR, and I'm in fourth year commerce. Yeah, Eric just walked in to join us for our conversation with Alicia. 
Um, Alicia Corbett is a political studies PhD student here at Queens. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. To start off, did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your current research as a PhD student? Yeah, awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Um, so I am a current PhD student in political studies at Queens. Um, I'm working with Professor Jonathan Rose and Professor Kyle Hanneman, and what I'm interested in is looking at the media's framing of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm completing a longitudinal study, so looking at media frames over the past 30 years or so. Um, and what I'm really interested in is knowing whether or not um, non-Indigenous Canadians' perceptions and support of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, whether or not that changes based on um, the frames that they're shown. Um, and I think this is a really topical and important issue in Canada, given the fact that the media plays such an important role in shaping our understandings and perceptions of uh, minority groups in Canada. For sure. And what made you specifically interested in the topic? Um, so I've always been interested in social media, um, in politics, especially because it is becoming increasingly used um, in social movements as well as political advertising. And it's kind of like an uncharted territory a little bit in uh, our field. Um, and specifically with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, um, I've always been passionate about Indigenous politics. Um, I have Indigenous ancestry, and so it was kind of um, both a personal and professional um, interest of mine. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing that and giving us a little information about your research and uh, how you got into that. So we'll just jump into some questions now. So to start off with campaigns, one of the more uh -huh. controversial ad blocks from this year was done by Facebook during the Irish abortion referendum to repeal the, uh, the Eighth Amendment. Now, following controversy around uh, Cambridge Analytica and its influence on previous campaigns like the 2016 American presidential elections or even Brexit, officials were concerned that outside influence on social media platforms could have an impact on voters' stance, especially with the voting pool floating at like around 3.2 million eligible voters in Ireland. So ultimately, that prompted Google to ban all referendum-related ads, and Facebook also blocked all advertising done by foreign media users. However, you know, that being said, Facebook still had an impact on the referendum with the Transparency Initiative referendum looking into those statistics and kind of, you know, breaking down how the ads um, were portrayed and the differences between the ads from both sides and how they attempted to influence voters. So the main uh -huh. difference was more emotional language from the no side contrasted by more factual language from the yes side suggesting more of an action oriented of a response. So you can uh -huh. almost say that Facebook ads reinforce messages that voters are already aware of from the general campaign, but use images and targeted language to emphasize certain points. Uh, that being said, in the context of this referendum, a lot of the ads from the no side were inherently more negative, with language like killing and killed being used a lot. So my question for you is, considering negative language that can be applied in a lot of referendum ads, do you think social media ad blocks are a good idea? Um, it's a tough question because like social media and especially advertisements uh, during political campaigns I see it as being both like a, a process of democracy, but also um, a way that hinders democracy, right? So 
it's tough because Facebook or Google uh, typically won't show a person an ad unless they're likely to already agree with that advertisement, right? Like they mm-hmm. follow certain algorithms. So they're not going to show, for example, in the U.S., they're not going to show um, a Republican a dem- an ad targeted towards um, somebody who's more likely to vote uh, Democrat. So it's tough in that sense because it makes you wonder how um, – likely it is that these ads actually do impact the political process um and to my knowledge there haven't actually been any studies done that have looked at a person's political preference um prior to being shown an ad and then after being shown an ad um but with that being said i do think there are some serious legitimacy issues um when it's foreign ads being put into a political process um, because there really isn't any regulations around social media advertising in political campaigns. So it's really hard to track and monitor. Um, and particularly in the uh, Irish uh, referendum, when advertisers use more um, emotive language, that's actually a lot more effective than factual language. So um, a lot of uh, citizens across the world respond more to um things that make them feel a certain way rather than showing them a statistic so in that sense um i do think it likely did have some impact on the referendum but um ultimately like prior to um these ads being shown there was like 66 percent of the population wanting to repeal the eighth um and they ultimately did so again it's really hard to say um how it impacted it and whether or not it's a good or bad thing For sure. And like, as you mentioned, because social media is that, you know, mega platform where literally anyone from anywhere, including like, again, foreign media outlets can affect this small voting block and distort their views in various ways. I think it is fair to almost say that social media could be or should be contained to influence from the voting block by the voting block to keep it fair and again to like reinforce national interests more than anything exactly yeah for sure okay that's great so with your research on um indigenous populations and um in particular like the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls um i'd just like to ask you a more broad question of how are indigenous populations mobilizing internationally over social media Yeah, so I think one of the great things about social media, and you've seen this in so many different social movements across the world, is the ability for social media to connect um, and transcend, like, geographic boundaries, right? So I know with, um, for example, I Don't Know More, um, social media has been integral in connecting and organizing protests within Canada and the United States, Um, as well as, like, I know personally, like, I follow a lot of different... um, uh, indigenous-led, like, populist movements on social media um, from the U.S. and in Canada, and it allows me to sort of, like, donate to organizations in the United States that I might support, um, and vice versa. So what I think it's been really integral in doing is breaking down those geographic boundaries and creating a really um, easy and effective way for people to organize politically. That's great. With specifically the um, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, how do you think social media influenced the awareness, mobilization, um, kind of that whole sphere around that movement? Yeah, so 
with the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, I think what social media has done most effectively uh, with this issue is raise awareness. So um, Canada has had really distressing and disproportionate numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls for the past 30 years. Yet it seems like only within the past couple of years, it's kind of come to the forefront of public um, opinion and public policy. And I think social media um, is largely uh, responsible for that because with social media, it's not mainstream media that is um, showing one message or um, one issue that most people are likely to care about. What social media allows people to do is it allows them to explore a variety of different um, public uh, policy issues. Right. And so I think with Twitter, especially with having the missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, hashtag, it got a lot of Canadians, um, first of all, aware about this issue. I know a lot of people were not aware about this issue prior to social media. And then I think once people become aware about an issue, um, especially one that is as um, upsetting as this issue, it does create political mobility, right? And we do now have uh, an inquiry on this issue and this inquiry is now hopefully going to be extended. So, um, yeah. Great. And the last question we wanted to ask you was what would a online movement look like in the developing world, specifically uh, maybe what it would look like from a feminist movement perspective, and if you knew anything about the Arab Spring uprising, how social media played a role within that event? Yeah, so um, to my knowledge, I can't think off the top of my head about any um, online feminist uh movements in the developing world but something that I think um, hypothetically social media has the potential to do with feminist movements in the developing world is to make these movements about the issues specific to different groups in the developing world so uh, feminism and social media um, feminism often is critiqued for being white women's feminism um, because it is largely white women uh, organizing feminist movements and it's typically about issues that affect white women. And so the interests or the issues of um, other minority women aren't usually included in these movements. And so I think social media has a real potential to um, unite different women across the globe um, to organize collectively around their specific interests. Um, and in terms of the uh, Arab Spring, social media played a huge role in that movement because um, not only on the side of the protesters being able to actually effectively organize um, and communicate, but in terms of the government. So what we saw there was that the government actually played a huge role in censoring social media. So, for example, just in Egypt alone, right, they banned Facebook and they banned Twitter, um, essentially trying to stop people from collectively organizing on uh, social media. And so, again, I think it highlights the point that social media is both a process of uh, democratization but also can be used to hinder democratization yeah absolutely so thank you so much for speaking with us today you hit a lot of great points is there anything else you'd like to add just in general before we wrap up the interview uh, no i think i'm good thank you guys so much for having me thanks again uh so bye alicia recording I think Alicia's discussion on government repression dived into a lot of aspects on how social media can be used as a tool of both power and oppression, um, especially in referendums and the Arab Springs as a case study. Yeah, um, 
So Alicia briefly touched on this, but I think it's very important to note that um, while online activist spaces for women did exist in the context of the Arab Spring, uh, those activists who actually moved in these online spaces were privileged academics. So due to the limited access of internet in the more rural environments, um, those who used uh, women's chat rooms in particular came from highly educated and middle-class backgrounds. It is very difficult to know how much of the organizing of protests was actually carried out by women and where it was carried out, but women were represented in public spaces during the protests. For example, in Tunisia, um, after the self-immolation of Bu Azizi, Bu Azizi's female relatives were actually photographed in the streets demanding justice. Um, it's important to also think about the fact that the women who protested in these public places subverted stereotypes of the Arab street as a male-dominated space. So social media's horizontal, horizontal structure of power actually allowed women to participate in information sharing, which ultimately aided in their participation on the streets. Finally, it's important to note that the stories of women's participation observed in North Africa arrive to us in the West as repackaged for Western liberal feminist consumption. Arab women's activism remains most globally recognized when it fits with Western narratives of womanhood and Western ideas of value. A more recent example of um, the government oppression that was kind of experienced during the Arab Spring has been the protests in Bangladesh. Eric, can you talk more about this? Sure. So on August 6th, a city of 18 million stopped to mourn the uh, death of a boy and a girl during a traffic accident in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is a country that's notorious for lax, corrupt, and unregulated traffic. So in this case, the bus accident was where a bus driver was racing to pick up uh, a passenger, and as a result, uh, he ran over this boy and girl. And in the preceding weeks, roughly 4,000 people took the streets to protest this event. Uh, most of them were students and they marched to defiance of weak traffic regulation within the area. Uh, in the coming days, the Bengali government restricted access to 3G and 4G data and there were also reports of police brutality within the peaceful demonstration. And at the core of this story, it's one where uh, governments can use social media and data access to actively suppress its citizens. This isn't just common in Bangladesh, but it's happened before and repeatedly in other nations, including those events in the Arab Spring that we've discussed, and also the Chinese government. In a broad sense, social media like Facebook is an effective tool to influence uh, a large population for three main reasons. The first is that uh, you have a wide audience and you can access them with very limited resources. The second is that there has been a growth in mobile devices in emerging economies and it's very easy to access these devices. It's not as influenced by income as let's say owning a computer. And the third reason is the point that Alicia touched on. It's that you can actively mobilize individuals with very little effort. and. The question that we're left with is uh, whether this is a positive thing. What happens sometimes is that uh, if you have this type of low-risk activism, how involved are the individuals that uh, participate within these social media protests and what will they look like in the future? And with that, we'd like to wrap up our podcast. Amazing. And that's a wrap on Writer Reply's inaugural episode of 2018. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on our social medias at Writer Reply or to send us suggestions or comments on our website and to check out our new episodes.
Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.